Greetings, people, and welcome to the last episode of Season 1 of Book Smart with Douglas Day. Today's show is dedicated to Mr. Al Crowder, K-R-A-U-T-T-R, and his 10 Steps to Natural Gardening. Time to plant milkweed, people, for the monarch butterflies. Yes, Nigel? Yes, sir. You have a call, sir. Nine, four, sir. Douglas Day. The man. uh, Yes, and a good day to you, sir. Need anything from the shop? Uh, line three, sir. Douglas Day. Need anything from the shop? Yes. A strawberry milk, please. All right. Since this is our last episode of season one of Booksmart, I have some thank yous to begin with. First of all, I'd like to thank Henrietta, my beloved wife, Bubbles, our cat, and the Brindu for their meatless Sunday roasts. I'd like to thank Mr. Nigel Lewis Stevenson, sound man, marketeer, and poet, Extraordinaire. I'd like to thank Mr. Mortimer Page for his curatorial acumen in choosing the music to accompany the episodes. I'd like to thank Mr. Christopher Ross. This has been a journey that began September 6, 2017. It is now May 4th, 2018, a Friday the Day of Detachment, which makes it fitting that we hear the last chapter and epilogue of Mr. Ross's anti-war novel, Hard Water. But first, some poetry from Mr. Nigel Lewis Stevenson. This is a poem by Nigel, this one entitled Preliminary Journey, Part 7, The Commending of the Degrees. Take this down to the sweet Quilliams. The hydrangea in the rector's garden is fraught with bees. Sir? Yes? The men are here, sir. The bees are frothing with honey-livered lips. Sir? What? The men are here, sir, the honored ones. All right, Quilliams, leave me on my own a bit, then bring them in. I will call them out two by twos. The men are here, sir. I can see that, Quilliams. Take that seat. See, see, here. Present. Here, see, see, here, sir. Joffrey Picklebush. Here. Present. Sir, here. Both stand center. Answer. Talk. Were either of you given last rites? Yes, sir, no. Picklebush, last rites. No, sir, no. Stand down then. Priest, anoint him. Ah, taken from us so young. Oxfordian, rightly. Where was it, Picklebush? How fell you ill? It was in the Le Mans, sir. Day of week, soldier? Friend day, sir. Time? 2.85, sir. Particular specifications of injury? Blood, sir. Bleeding. Last words? Mother. Last thoughts? 
pancakes. Last, last image, last sight, carnage. Specific, tree limb. Mm. Priest, a blue him. Thank you, sir. Stand down. Yes, sir. Next. I'm moving about for the hell of it Who do you love in a ghost town? Where some of us slip away And some of us don't I'm fucking about in a ghost town I'm moving around for the sake of it Who can you love in a ghost town? Some of us rise again Some of us don't Tell me a story, the story of a man who got away Tell me a story, the story of a man who got away Settling down in a ghost town Digging holes for the little ones Who needs more than a ghost town Where some of us live asleep And some of us don't
Douglas had explained to me the project, and I'd heard a bit of the novel Hard Water, heard Miss Ross talk about life, death, and the in-between. Well, I just so happened to listen to that song, Graves, by the Welsh band Climbing Trees, and it seemed to fit perfectly and inspires me to this day, the music of that Welsh band. I recommend you play that song loud. Thanks again for the opportunity to choose the music, and thank you to all the musicians. Signing off for now, this is Mortimer Page. Thank you, Mortimer, and thank you to the band Climbing Trees. Mr. Ross, how are you today? I'm good, Douglas. How are you doing? Hey, Nigel. Tip, tap, What did you think of Nigel's poetry, Mr. Ross? I liked it. Um, I always liked Nigel's poetry. I liked uh, especially his use of the uh, McWilliams and the um, this idea of the commending of the degrees actually sounds like it's, it's sort of a death ticket. Um, but... It did match nicely with the overall connecting idea of life, death, and the in-between, but Nigel adds a uh, sort of an absurdist twist in there with his characters and their behaviors. Hmm. Thank you, sir. Mr. Ross, you have final chapter for us today and an epilogue. Anything you'd like us to know before you read? No, I don't think so, uh, Douglas. And what are your plans after this, Mr. Ross? Well, as I said on an earlier episode, I want to revise the manuscript, um, hopefully one more time, and then get it ready for publication. Mmm, nose to the grindstone, as it were. That's right. Well, I should say that preliminary plans for season two will include another novel by Mr. Ross. Would you like to say a word about that, Mr. Ross? Yeah, Douglas. Um, I'm trying to decide between two novels. One is already published. It's called Spread Thy Love. And uh, it's about teenage hobos riding the rails during the Depression. At one time, there were 250,000 teenagers riding the railroads in an itinerant manner. Their folks at home basically couldn't afford to keep them around anymore because the land was so barren. So that book's about that. And then another book I, I wrote um, not so long ago is set in New York City, and it's called The Dog Walker. And that's something I haven't looked at in a couple years, so that would be sort of a, a fresher process to, uh, to follow. Mm, well, in any case, Mr. Ross, it has been a pleasure... Thanks, Douglas. Yep, me too. I appreciate all that you have done to uh, put this program together. My pleasure, Mr. Ross. Whenever you're ready, yam on. Chapter 30 of Part 3, It's Got to Be Sacred, of the novel, Hard Water. You follow your feet down Sycamore Mile. You grasp the steel gate in your hand and it swings open easily. Hello, sweet Ridjo. 
Azo and Simscoe spot you but don't raise a ruckus until they catch a whiff of your skin. Then they're running up the lane. Azo, Simscoe, you yell. The two jubilant hounds maul you toothlessly as they paw you to the ground. After some more roughhousing, the dogs settle down to sniff the fulsome early May breeze. They wash their forelegs. They roll over onto their sides and melt into the forgiving ground. Up in the sky, a clouder of clouds, you look for a camel, a cat, and a crow. The bees buzz in the background. A stately monarch settles softly onto clumps of Joe Pye weed. The earth is taking you into itself more deeply. A grassy nest cradles you, and various insects move about you. You sit up and feel the full force of the mid-afternoon sun warming your face. You look down the lane at the bevy of blooming peach trees down around behind the red farm house. The chimney emits a thin wisp of smoke into the fresh May air. You could lay here on your back forever. But suddenly the thought of returning home brings nausea to your guts and increases your shaking. Tremendous guilt settles into your soul. I should have fought harder, you think. What if Ruth refuses me? What will the town folk say? The yellow lab Azo lifts her head and says, Don't matter what they say. Yeah, you done did what you needed to do adds Simscoe. Life is short, compadre, concludes Azo. Forgive yourself and move on. You smell cornbread on the breeze. You start to cry at the scent of it. Ruth's bread, you hear yourself say. You resume crying, but out of happiness. The pain mercifully lifts. So it's up and at him down the lane. A combination of laughter and tears assails your nappy mug. You're going to see your baby soon. Azo and Simscoe bark in unison to announce your arrival at the kitchen porch. You stand at the screen door and spy the backside of your fiancé, stationed at the sink. Knock, knock, you say. She turns. Her hands quickly hide her gasping face in her cotton apron. You creak the door open and the two dogs return to their posts, slack-jawed and concerned. Howdy, Ruth, you say. Well, I'll be, well, I'll be, well, I'll be, she repeats over and over. You put down your bindle and move toward her. Is it really true? She asks. You embrace her. You pick her up and begin towards the back stairs. But she turns you to the oven. She wraps her hands in her cotton apron and reaches in to retrieve the steaming loaf of cornbread. She nestles the hot loaf into her bundled-up apron. She directs you to the pie safe. She reaches in and retrieves a small crock of butter. She directs you back to the back stairs. You stop at the first landing and peer out the window toward the barn. Your mama's in town, she says. She'll be back in a couple hours. You carry your Ruth to the bedroom. The May wind brusquely billows the violet-colored curtains. 
You swing close the door. You dip her down slightly and she places the cornbread and butter on the curly maple table. You place her upright on her feet. You hold her tightly. She disengages from your hug and leans back to look at you, then quickly burrows into you again. Tears flow slowly from her eyes. It's really you, she says. Yup, you say. It's me, the real McCoy. Ruth burrows into your neck and closes her eyes for a spell. Do you mind if I cut a couple slices of the bread, you ask. Ruth shakes no. You cut the two slices and lay them down on the Blue Ridge pottery plate. You spread the butter. You put the knife down. As the butter melts and oozes, Ruth helps pull off your clothes. She runs a hot bath and escorts you to the tub. You step into the warm, roiling water. Ruth sits on a stool next to the tub and scrubs your back with a long-handled brush. Ruth wets a washcloth and rubs it brusquely behind your ears and up and down your neck. Ruth hands you the brush and you scrub your chest, your belly, your legs, and feet. Well, I'll be, says Ruth. Time to change the water. You use the lip of the tub to pull yourself to standing. The dirty detritus delivers itself down the drain. Okay, Sherlock, says Ruth. You can sit down again. Ruth directs you to lay with your feet resting out the end of the tub so she can position your head under the nozzle. Now we're going to wash that mop, she says. Ruth applies a thick lather of lavender soap to your hair. There, she says. Rinse. The flow of warm water courses through your scalp. She turns off the faucet. There, she says. Now you are free to relax, my lover. I'll be waiting in bed. You reverse your position. You lay your head back on the porcelain lip of the tub and close your eyes and dream this is really happening. Could this be possible? Yes. Anything is possible. You exit the tub and enter the boudoir of conjugal bliss. You float. You smile. You look into her eyes and see beyond her eyes to distant stars and galaxies. You feel the inner core of her heart contract and relax. Nothing is real but this and this and this and this. Everything is easy and everything is good. How long have you waited to feel the strength of this connection again? At dusk, you wake alone to the smell of fried chicken and biscuits. You hear voices in the kitchen. You quietly descend down the back stairs. The chicken lightly sizzles in the cast iron pan. You hear Ruth say, He's torn up, of course he is. But once we get some meat back on his bones, you push open the door and time stands still for a moment. Well, I'll be, says your mother, if it ain't my baby. You hug her. Oh, my blessed child, she repeats over and over. Pause. 
You sit down to eat chicken, biscuits, and gravy, all higglied up with a dash of salt and pepper. After you stuff yourself, you are directed to the rocking chair in the sitting room. Looks like we got some peaches coming, you say. "Uh Uh-huh, says your mother. Signs say a right good crop this season. We had just the perfect amount of chill hours last winter, and the trees broke their dormancy in early March. Now they blossom like banshees. But rest your weary bones, son. No need to rush out there now. You can inspect them in the morning. You yawn and agree. Shortly past sunrise, you wake to the blare of the blue jay. Your mama and Ruth await you at the table. Good morning, Arthur. Good morning. Ready to eat? Oh, yes. Ruth piles a stack of flapjacks on the plate just in front of you. You slather them with butter. Ruth distributes two eggs over easy and a rectangle of scrapple to your plate. You higgly the eggs and flapjacks together and douse the sweet and savory mixture with a healthy dollop of hot maple syrup and then dig in. After breakfast, you head out to the orchard. The women were right. The crop looks like it will be fulsome. You bring a blossom to your nose. God bless the bluebirds and the swallows and the frogs you think keeps the bugs down. And what would we do without the mason bees? After inspecting the orchard, you accompany your mama to the family plot in Mount Hope Cemetery. The daffodils have come up nicely, she says, and the peonies look strong. Your brother Jed was here a week ago Wednesday and planted the staghorn sumac behind your grave. Said that was your favorite. Said it's good for the birds. She finishes deadheading the flowers and tidying the graves, then rises up from her knees. You bow to the graves and then accompany your mother back to the house. Pause. A stretch of time goes by. Then one day Azo and Simsko raise a ruckus. Two interlopers appear at your gate. I'll go, says Ruth. You watch from a distance, rocking, wondering if it's who you think it is. Yes, it is the farm girl, Ruth from West Virginia, who loved the calf pepper and helped you and Goodall to heal. Darling, says your Ruth, you got a couple of visitors. Well, I'll be jiggered you say. I told you I'd be seeing you again, you old flapjack, says the girl. You did indeed, say you. Me and Erasmus T. Coyle, best bird man this side of the Ohio. Stumbled on him at our farm. Here's a feller who's devoting his life to the study of birds. As if on cue, the one-eyed Cardinal Benjamin and his boon companion, Mimus Polyglottis, land on the broad shoulders of the student Erasmus. Howdy, Erasmus. Well, I'll be jiggered. Who do we have here? It's a long story, says Ruth, but suffice to say we're off to Chicago where these two birds are going to be studied and I'm going to track down Goodall and have me some fun. Show him your sketches, Erasmus. You sit at the table and slowly leaf through the pages of the young man's sketches of birds. Impressive, you say. Since we're on the subject, let's go down to the barn. There's a trio of chicks roosting in the hayloft I want you to see. You walk Erasmus and Ruth down to the barn. Azo and Simsko trod alongside you, their noses studying the air. Now, 
I've yet to see the mother. They're some kind of bird of prey, obviously, but much bigger than a hawk. You quietly lead Ruth and Erasmus up the hayloft ladder. On the far side of the loft stand two tall, black-eyed chicks covered in thick, white down. They're so fuzzy, whispers Ruth. And tall, you say. What say you, Erasmus? Catartes ora, he pronounces. Turkey vultures. Note their dead brethren in the corner. Well, I'll be, you say. There were three a couple days ago. Do you mind if I sketch them? asks Erasmus. By all means, my friend, sketch away, you answer. On the way up to the house, you are compelled to tell Ruth about Goodall's untimely departure. He up and took off on Ferdinand the Bull into the wild blue yonder, my friend. Is that possible? she asks. You catch her eyes for a moment. Who knows, you reply. He might be there. It's worth a shot, I'd say. Besides, you always wanted to go to Chicago. He's got to be there, says Ruth. He's just got to be. While Ruth and you consider the whereabouts of your old pal Goodall, Erasmus sits in the hayloft and silently sketches the infant buzzards. Near sunset, their mother appears at the hole in the peak of the barn. After a slight pause, she cascades down to her offspring and splay claws the remains of a rabbit to the hayloft floor. Her two remaining chicks cluck and cordle and squeak and bark and rip and tear and gulp the incarnadine offering. The hungry, hopping chicks take no notice of the budding ornithologist who deftly captures their likeness with his pencil. Nor do they acknowledge the arrival of the one-eyed Cardinalis, Cardinalis named Benjamin or the mimus polyglottus named Daisy, who curiously cocks her head and expertly mimes the guttural pastiche of the young birds of prey, with her own volume muted. Indeed, the hungry, hopping chicks take no notice of the still remains of their brethren in the corner, nor do they raise their black eyes from feasting whence their mother flaps through the hole in the peak of the barn and wheels into the wild blue yonder without them. The End Epilogue Remember me. Don't forget me. Some people disappear, but their sound doesn't. It paints the sky, the venue, the faces and thoughts of those who bebop and listen, soaks into souls and reverberates, recalibrates blood streams, yeah, soaks into our consciousness and puts our house in order, cleans out cobwebs, shakes off dust, lets the fresh air in. Make no mistake, my teacher used to tell me, when you blow that horn, Infuse it with sacred breath, son, borne down unto you from God the Creator, the Great Maker, without whom you and your lips and lungs would be at a distinct loss as how to and what to blow, how and what to know. But follow the notes, they're either going up, down, or straight across, no? 
But it's got to be sacred, son. You understand that, right? Sacred sound comes directly from sacred breath. When I kick the back of your chair, it's not only to keep you going, but it's to remind you of all that's sacred. But you got to dig deep. You got to reach for those notes that float and flash and slip and dash. It's between the notes that counts. Keep playing, boy, keep playing. Each note dips down into the middle darkness. Clippity-clappity, I'm so happy. Clippity-doo, I'm so blue. Mix the two, magic elixir. Concentrate, boy, you'll get the picture. From and of the Holy One. Pick up the beat and don't retreat. Blow that horn, blow that horn. Close your eyes and feel the real deal. Keep it at middle C. Honesty, alchemy, empathy, charity. Hop it back between C, G, and A. I'll jump in and splash some earth tones. But here's the thing. Some of this may sting. Well, I suppose what they say, life is a circle, can be circular, we end with the We end with the band that we began with, climbing trees from the great country of Wales. I'd like to thank our other musicians, Geowolf, Tenfei, Future Birds, the Mick Mahoney Band, Spencer Burton, Jack Hader, Ha Ha Tonka, Francis Dunnery, A.S. Fanning, Justin Rutledge, Yolklore, Van Devere, Partner, Del Water Gap, Ardency, David Ramirez, Wake Al, Chris Staples, Jen Grant, Kyle Morton, Laura Fearing, Luna, Steve Forbert, and John Spillane. Thank you to all the musicians who make the world go round. This is Mortimer Bay. Thank you, Mortimer. And thank you, Mr. Ross, for reading us your novel, Hard Water. This has been the final episode of Season 1 of Book Smart with Douglas Day. Except that I have missed the point. The fact that I can feel it, it's a simple choice. It's the setting sun. It's the setting sun. There lies plenty in the miniature To float upon a breath that could create a tear It's the setting sun 
Yes, I said. 